Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, get yourself a gentle axe, because it's SST 154, the self-titled Pat Ruth and Smear LP. First time we've had Pat on the show at all, I believe, mm-hmm. and it's his first full length with us, which is great. It's a really cool record. And Brent, we've got a special guest. Yeah, Paul Rossler's on the show again. Again, yeah. I was yeah. going to say, is is Paul our first person back on twice, or were the Dos Domin guys on twice? Uh, and we've also had Mr. California on twice. Okay, so yeah. Paul is joining our two timers club. There yep. you go. Yep. Nice. Yeah, so cool to have Paul on. It's a great interview, as always, with Paul. Yeah. Brent, who should spiel it for the people first, you or I? Spiel for the dudes, man. And the dudettes. Of course. All right, here we go. Some quick spiels. First is, actually, you know what? This has got a Das Damen tie-in, now that we mentioned Das Damen. It's on the SS tree. Just to mention for folks to go and check out on Bandcamp, the Royal Arctic Institute has got a new track out called 13 Christmases at Sea. That's Lyle and David from Das Damen as well. So go check that out real quick. Yeah. Um, their, their records, their full lengths, their cassettes are cool too. My next spiel, Brandt, we're going to go into one of your favorite zones. Can you guess which one it is? Can I say it? Please do. The Comp Zone. Nice. So, <laughs> Water Under the Bridge Records has a new comp out. Well, they announced it a while back, but there was a delay, I think, in manufacturing, if I, if I understood kind of the, all the tweets and stuff like that. It's a new comp a San Pedro comp called Spike art by Raymond Pettibone. There's uh, some bands on there from water under the bridge that I really like, like a lovely sort of death. I'm really digging that record. I was, I pulled out that lovely sort of death record the other day and was digging it hard. And they've got a track on this record. So does Mike Watt and the second missing men, which I think is just a mashup of the second man and the missing men. Hmm. Also toys that kill. Another cool band on Water Under the Bridge. So check out that comp, Spike. Yeah. And then uh, also, Brant, uh, I've got another Watt proj to mention for you. <laughs> What's up? Yeah, no, it's not that. Your ongoing uh, segment, What's up? <laughs> I feel like it's my fourth or fifth week in a row, but I keep discovering or he keeps releasing. But this is related to MSSV, Main Steam Stop Valve. They released a new two-song 7-inch out on Improved Sequence Records, and people should check that out. Also on Improved Sequence Records, this is very cool for me and uh, maybe for some of our listeners as well. They have re-released the first album by Pile. Pile was my number one pick in my top 10 last year, and their record demonstration finally finally re-released by improved sequence it's kind of a an acoustic record almost right by the main dude in that band um you know they're more of a full band these days but very cool to get that demonstration record re-released i hope some people are pumped about that yeah and that's all i've got brand for spiels okay i have the x section ryan and i'm gonna throw in the y section too because of the my get this shit off my phone segment because i only had a few x's Cool. So you're going to go for both axes. Yes. Is that fair? Yep. I'm going for it. Do it. Okay. Do it. Write a book about it, man. Do it. All right. Zetus, the band you hit me to, I 
went back and did their record, The Tower, which is their second one from 2017. You had recommended their 2020 album, The Cypher, which is also really great. But this record, The Tower, is good too. Noisy Punk from Austin. Really good stuff. All three LPs are great by them. Yeah. Love it. And then I did the, the band X. Which one? The, not the LA one, the Australian uh-huh. one. I did their 1989 album, And More. This is the second album that they put out when they re- reformed for the first time. It's killer Aussie punk rock. This is the band Ian Rylan formed after leaving Rose Tattoo in 1977. Okay, Ryan, I'm going to go into the why section now here. Why not? I did the record. Your... Yeah, why not? Your Food is the name of the band. I don't recall how this band came up. They were recommended by a listener. I'm sorry, I don't recall who. It was quite a while ago. I seem to think it was because we were talking about Wolf Knapp. He was in this band Anti-Tam. Oh, that's yeah. On Homestead. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Maybe we were talking about them. Yeah, I feel like Wolf Knapp has some sort of SST connection, though, but I just could not find it on Discog. So if anybody remembers why we were talking about this, <laughs> or if indeed Wolf Knapp has a, a connection to SST somehow... I feel like he does. Is it that record, Poke It With a Stick? Poke It With a Stick? Yeah, which your food record did you listen to? There is only, yeah, Poke It With a Stick. Yeah, it's the only one. Yeah, right on. It came out in 1983, but it was reissued by Drag City a few years ago. It's good. Indeed it is. I can't remember the SST connection either, but I know that band, yep. Yeah. Okay, Ryan, I did Young, as in Neil Young. Return to Greendale, a newly released live album with Crazy Horse, recorded in Toronto in 2003, but just released now. It's super awesome. I've always loved that Greendale record. Uh, And it's a great time to be a Neil Young fanatic. He's pumping out stuff from his archives. He just released his long-awaited Volume 2 10-disc box set from his archives. He's got... He's got a pair of live albums coming out in early 2021, one solo acoustic one from 71 and one with Crazy Horse from the Ragged Glory Tour. He released an EP called The Times recently, which is solo acoustic material that he recorded at his home during lockdown. And this year he also released the excellent unreleased studio album from 1974 called Homegrown, which is also included in the in the box set. Ryan, I listened to the Yes Masters Lion and Tiger Fight record from this year. It's brand new. This is Kurt Block of the Fastbacks. Uh, It's his new band. It's their second record on his own No Threes label, and it's great. If you like Fastbacks, you will like this. Kurt also did a cool lockdown record to celebrate his 60th birthday called Farewell Excitement. It's up on his band camp. It's really cool. And another similar lockdown project is Scott McCaughey's Rock and Roll Party 66, a lockdown project he did for his 66th birthday. Uh, he released it to his band camp under the name Scott the Hoople. And speaking of Neil Young, he just this month released an album of Neil Young covers on his band camp. And I also actually did a Young Fresh Fellows record, their debut, The Fabulous Sounds of the Pacific Northwest, 1984 Pop Lama. Ryan, I listened to the Young Canadians No Escape compilation. Right on. Yeah, this is the amazing comp of their two totally perfect EPs from 79 and 80, as well as a ton of great live stuff. In the early 90s, this Vancouver label released this comp. Uh, Zulu Records was the label. Uh, 
uh, and a similar one for the modernettes and the pointed sticks. All three are totally essential Canadian first wave punk, and all three have been re-released on Joe Keithley's Sudden Death Records. And I checked, they're all still available. Some with different tracks too, when they re-released on Sudden Death for some reason. So you actually need both. People should head over to Sudden Death and check those out. And while you're at it, score a copy of Pigment Vehicles, Murder's Only Foreplay When You're Hot for Revenge, which is a perfect record. Beyond perfect, actually. Maybe pick up some DOA records while you're there. And if I could recommend, Ryan, they still have copies of the Damned Molten Lager live album. It's an awesome live recording from 1984 when they had just released this underrated album called Not of This Earth, which was also known as I'm Alright Jack and the Beanstalk. It's that album front to back live and it rules. Youth Brigade, Sound and Fury, 1982 BYO. I'm getting myself primed for that Trust Records reissue. Right. Here's one that's on the tree, Ryan. Yawning Man, live at Giant Rock. Just came out. It's brand new. Great desert rock jam band with tons of SST connections. And we'll be getting to to some of these guys once we get to the Sort of Quartet and Fatso Jetson releases. Right. Is Bill Stinson drum on that one? I think he so. He does, right? yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. right. Ryan, here's a recommend for you. The band is called Yammerer. Okay. Do you know them? Y-A-M-M-E-R-E-R. They're from Liverpool, kind of from that wave of killer post-punk coming out of the UK, like Idols, Shame, Fontaine's DC. They haven't done a full length yet. There's a bunch of singles. There's an EP that I listened to called Reality Escape Resort. Here's a quote from Clash magazine, Ryan, that I think will send you probably hightailing it over to their band camp as soon as we're done recording this. <laughs> it recalls everyone from Gang of Four to Early Wire via Minutemen or even elements of Fugazi in its taut splendor. That ought to do it. Yeah. Ryan, I did the Ingve Malmsteen trilogy record. Yeesh. I'm an I'm an unapologetic fan of Ingve. I know it's cheesy, but that just makes me love it even more. I did Yuri Gergerin. The Outskirts of Reality, brand new record from 2020. It's their third. They're a Swedish space rock band, and if that's your cup of tea, they're pretty cool. And I did the Yes record, Tales from the Topographic Ocean. Not one that I go to. It's much maligned record, probably for for good reason. But those first, the three that they, that precede that one, Close to the Edge, the Yes album, and Fragile are pillars of Prague for sure. Prague pillars. Prog pillars. There you go. Prog pillars. That's it, Ryan. That's we've got one left. Which one? One sec. Z or one Z? One section. I don't know what is it in Canada. It's Z up here, man. Yeah, I got the Z section. There we go. <laughs> nice. There's no various artists or soundtracks section, or is that not? Well, you organize your. That's not how you organize your phone. Various artists is interspersed. That's that's, that's its separate category, Ryan. That's. The comp zone. So you're not getting any comps off your phone? Maybe. All right. I, that just that just happens throughout the year. Okay. Okay. Whenever the mood strikes me. Okay. You don't want to get too much comp zone in one go, I guess. No. Yeah. No. Because because you got to spend time discovering each band on the comp, right? You don't want comp zone overload. No, you don't. You want just the right amount of comp zone. You want to get into this Pat Ruth and Smear record? Let's do it. 
History lesson, part one. All right. So I will admit that I have never really dug into this record deeply. I've listened to it a few times. I bought it out of a cutout. Well, I don't even know if it was a cutout bin. It's definitely I have a cutout copy of it. And it just never came up on my radar that much. But it's a really cool, like, I kind of, this week listening to it, I was like, this is kind of like a glam punk musical sounding type record for me. Uh, And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I mean, there's a ton of history on this record, right? Yeah. Same for me. Uh, Not a record I was familiar with really at all. I'd maybe heard it once before. Uh, I just loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Really cool. And that's a really good description too, what you just said. I have a little history lesson on Paul Rossler and Pat Smear. Light it up, my friend. Light it up. I'll do Paul first. Paul Rossler is a classically trained musician and a prominent and prolific member of the L.A. punk scene. He's played in scores of classic bands as well as many obscure but equally cool and interesting projects. First, he notably joined innovative electro-punk band The Screamers, who are generally regarded as one of the great unrecorded bands in history. Uh, There are some demos and some footage of them live at Target Video in 1977 and at the Mabuhay in San Francisco in 1978. That's totally worth checking out. He went on after that to join Nervous Gender, along with former Germs drummer Don Bowles. Uh, He also played with Giza X and the Mummy Men. Next, he was recruited by German singer Nina Hagen, uh, who he toured Europe with and the States and recorded on her debut solo album, Nunsex Monk Rock, which if you've never heard that record, that's an insane album that's totally worth your time. As you'll hear in the interview, Pat also joined that band and he and Paul left at the same time, forming Twisted Roots together in 1981 along with Paul's sister Kira who, of course, would go on to replace Chuck Dukowski in Black Flag. He also played in 45 Grave and is on their classic record, Sleep in Safety. We've seen Paul on episodes 33, uh, 63, which is the one that we spoke to him on, and episode 83, the DC3 stuff we've gotten to so far, and we'll be seeing him again in two weeks. He's also done a ton of session work. He's played with TSOL, Dead Kennedys, Mike Watt, who uh, he recorded with and released material uh, with on New Alliance Records as Crimony. He's also played on Saccharin Trust Records. He's played with Josie Cotton, Red Cross, Mark Curry, and many others. As you'll hear him talk about in the interview, he's been a recording engineer for many years, for at least a decade now at his own kit and robot studio, which is also a label now. Uh, He has a brand new Bandcamp page with a bunch of material on it, including The Ark, his prog epic that he wrote when he was 16 and recorded in 2012. His Bandcamp, Ryan, also has SST-196 on it, his solo album, Abominable, but uh, please don't skip ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Not like you never do. Yeah. Okay, then we've got George Albert Ruthenberg, a.k.a. Pat Smear. As a teenager, he was a founding member, of course, of The Germs, releasing their debut and only studio album, G.I., in 1979, 
often considered the first hardcore punk album, most certainly a milestone record. A year after the release, on December 7th, 1980, vocalist Darby Crash took his own life. Next, uh, Pat and Paul formed Twisted Roots together and released a single in 1981 before Pat left that group. These tracks, along with some unreleased material, can be heard on the 2004 compilation on Dionysus Records, Twisted Roots. He also played in a very early version of 45 Grave uh, on their first single, Black Cross, which can be heard more easily on the Autopsy compilation by 45 Grave. I read in that book, Phantoms, that you got for me, Ryan, that he was in that band for about a year. Ah. He briefly played in The Adolescence, replacing Rick Agnew in 1981, but left before he could record anything with them. At some point, he formed the group Vagina Dentata with Gary Jacoby, Michelle Bell, and Tim Ferriss. He also did some acting in the early 80s, playing bit parts in Blade Runner, Howard the Duck, Chips, Quincy, and more. He appears in the video for Prince's Raspberry Beret and No Doubts Don't Speak. Following this record, uh, he started working behind the counter at the SST Superstore on the Sunset Strip. Uh, during that time, he and Gary Jacoby teamed up as The Death Folk and released a couple of records on New Alliance. He played in an early version of the band Celebrity Skin uh, with Gary Jacoby. He played on Belinda Carlisle's Real album in 1993. Rumor has it around this time he turned down an offer to join Red Hot Chili Peppers as a replacement for John Frusciante around 1993. Hmm. He famously met Kurt Cobain while he was working at the SST Superstore and ended up joining Nirvana and later Foo Fighters. We'll also be seeing him much, much later on SST 294, his So You Fell in Love with a Musician album. There's a really cool detailed recap of the rise and fall of the Germs in the Germs tribute record, A Small Circle of Friends, and it was written by Bill Bartell of White Flag. You can find the whole thing on Mike Watts' Hoot page. That's worth checking out. Yeah, that's a good, a, that's a good a, comp. Yeah, it is really good. Lots of artists on the tree on that one. Oh, yeah. That's it. That's my history lesson on Pat and Paul, who I'll probably... I probably got them mixed up in the interview, too. I probably called Pat and Paul and Paul Pat. It's okay, man. He's a two-timer. He'll take it. <laughs> Brant, we've got some promo material for this record uh, written by the Spaceman that I should spiel for the people. Can I hit it? Yeah, hit that shit. All right. This is what the Spaceman said about this record. The metamorphosis of Pat Smear to Pat Ruthen Smear is one of the strangest in the annals of rock. Normally, the writing of an artist's biography is an easy task. The recitation of past accomplishments the listing of influences, the prognosis for the future, and, if you're lucky, a little humor and first-class spielage. That's all it usually is. When hit by the odyssey-like proportions of Pat's evolution from a juvenile delinquent who has managed to get himself banned from all Los Angeles city schools into omniscient harbinger of some of the most eclectic music ever, well, it's almost too much to comprehend. 
His father escaped occupied Germany as a teenager and landed in Hollywood where he met a beautiful black chorus girl. They defied a racist society and even the laws of their time when they married. 20 years later, Pat was born. I met Darby Crash when I was 12 years old and we took LSD together. We were best friends ever since. That's, uh, that's what Pat Smear said here as a quote. Pat and Darby, along with Lorna Doom and Belinda Carlisle, formed Los Angeles seminal punk band, The Germs. Belinda left after the band threatened to learn how to play their instruments, but the band continued and carved an enormous gouge in the face of modern music. So far, it seems, the saga of Ruth and Smear is easy to follow and makes perfect sense. It is after the demise of the germs, however, that it becomes hard to follow. And this is a quote from Pat. After Darby's death, I didn't play for a while, not until Don Ballas tricked me into joining his new band, 45 Grave. I didn't stay with that band long. Becoming bored with the musical style he had pioneered and more and more people were imitating, Pat embarked on a dizzy race through more musical styles than most people can dream of. Before his first solo album, Pat Ruthensmeer for SST, Pat had started Twisted Roots with longtime friend Paul Rossler, brought Nina Hagen's operatic tendencies to the fore as her instigator slash guitarist. Pat's mother was an internationally known opera singer, by the way, co-founded Vagina Dentata and Celebrity Skin and continued his anarchistic style pillage of everything. Ruth and Smear, judge for yourself. So that's a spiel from the Spaceman. I've also got a spiel from Trouser Press, too. Can I hit you with that? Please. All right. Here's what Ira said. Making Pat Ruth and Smear with keyboardist Paul Rossler, a drummer and several guests, the lisping singer, versatile guitarist, whose real name is George Ruthenberg, takes an enjoyably weird, if indulgent, romp through the various non-punk pop and rock styles as if he were trying to boil down everything Rodney had played on the rock over the prior 15 years, showcasing instrumental skill and scenery-chewing vocal stylings. Smear flips the idiosyncratic tracks toward Red Cross giddiness, acoustic restraint, dance thwack, experimental nonsense, and whatever else comes into his studio-bound head. The kind of album only friends could love. Pat Ruth and Smear nonetheless has stuff others might also find amusing. He's actually a little, I think he's kind of dissing it a bit, but also appreciative. Yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't diss it after listening to it so many times this, this week. It's a really ambitious record is what sticks yeah, out for me. It like, sure is. Like, wow. Yeah. Let's kick it over to, to Paul. All right. We're joined on the podcast by Paul Rossler. Paul, thanks for being on the show. Glad to be on there, Brent. Thanks for asking me. Okay. So we're talking about this Pat Smear record that you produced and played on. But I'm wondering if you can take me back to when you met Pat. Did the Screamers and the Germs ever play together? I actually knew Pat before that. We went to high school together. Okay. I was really uh, Pat and Darby were best friends in high school, and um, but Pat went away to uh, he got sent away to like religious school for like a year, mm -hmm. and in that time, um, that's when I first got to know Darby, and uh, 
I sort of hung out with him all the time. Um, so I kind of didn't know Pat at first, but I did know that they were kind of best friends when Pat had been sent away. So, and, you know, I sort of spotted Darby at the high school and he seemed really, really like a kind of one of the most interesting, fascinating people there. So I kind of, you know, like glommed onto him trying to be his friend. So he's kind of a hard person to really be a friends with. He was more like, you were more like kind of one of his followers it was kind of hard for me to do, but Pat was like the one person that never was one of his followers. They were actually genuine friends. And, um, um, Darby always almost sort of expected like subservience from the people around him, which was much ego to do that. But, uh, but he didn't treat Pat that way. And when Pat came back, so I got pretty close to Darby. We hung out a lot for like, um, I think it was my 11th grade in high school. And then Pat came back, and right away they were best friends again. And I kind of felt on the outs a little bit. But also, Darby got kicked out of school. So I wasn't, I wasn't super close to Pat, but I would see him around a lot, you know. We were kind of in the same cult, the cult of Darby, but kind of not at the same time. And then, you know, uh, so Darby, when the germs started playing, I was studying classical music up at Northridge, but I was still talking to Darby, and uh, he invited me to come see them play and i saw some pretty early shows that would have been late uh mid to late 77 sometime probably fall of 77 mm-hmm. they were just they were still pretty much of a mess as a band but even then i kind of thought that pat was doing really interesting stuff on the guitar i could tell from the way he did feedback and um Pretty quick, I could tell by his right hand that I think it's his right. I don't think he's left-handed. His his rhythm hand, I noticed. And if you notice on all the early recordings, his rhythm hand is super accurate. He's a very accurate and good player. And I was, you know, um, when I was I was into prog rock and classical music a lot in in um, high school. And Darby tried to turn me on to punk rock, probably at the end of '76 or maybe the beginning of '77. And he played me Blondie and the Ramones, and I was like, "No, this is just <laughs> this is just pop music with like a twist." And I, I don't get either one of these bands, and um, they certainly weren't advanced. And it wasn't until I heard the Sex Pistols that I, it kind of got through to me what was going on. So he told me when he was turning me on to um, trying to turn me on to punk rock, he said, "Me and Pat are starting a band," <laughs> and I was like, "What?" Because I I had a band. I'd written a forty-seven minute prog rock piece like along the lines of Jethro Tull or Yes or Emerson Lake and Palmer and I was practicing like 10 hours a day and these these friends of mine that as far as I knew had no at that time being really you know since punk rock hadn't really happened being really advanced musically was kind of our trendy thing that we were into you know my little click we were into like how like fast and fancy and complicated can you get Um, which was kind of the punk kind of punk and as it related to like disco or um california soft rock you know playing playing really aggressive prog rock was kind of kind of punky in in a way it was uh progressive it was uh subversive to the status quo but i was just like laughed out loud when he told me pat was playing guitar and i'm like what do you mean and pat had always been a big yes fan a big queen fan in fact he was 
fanatical, like Stan is short fanatic for fanatical. He was fanatical about Yes and Queen. Fanatical. Like he listened <laughs> to them, those two bands just constantly. And um, that's a pretty good background. And then, so Darby told me when they were starting a band, I go, but does Pat, Pat actually play guitar? And Darby said, oh yeah, he's already figured out all of the Yes and the Queen songs. <laughs> and I was like, but that's just how Darby talked. Is what I, one of the things I loved about him. He's just, you know, kind of a liar but a, a kind of exaggerator but basically just spoken myths you know right and um not like anyone in high school and um and they were like you know they were like this team this awesome team and pat got very good very quickly i don't know if he'd been practicing before he started the germs but he got there very fast mm -hmm. fast forward to kind of the end of that band did you guys play together in 45 grave at the same time no, we didn't play together in 45 Graves. Darby died, and I was playing in Nina Hagen band at that time. He, uh, I was touring with Nina Hagen in the last couple of months of his life, and I just saw him a few times. We were staying in a, at a hotel that Nina put us up in when we got back from tour, and he came and visited us, and I afterwards think he was sort of saying goodbye. And um, Darby died, and I didn't... I, uh, we were all kind of in shock for a while. And then... Um, I was playing in a lot of bands. You know, my wife said, why are you in all these bands like Nervous Gender and Days X and the Mommy Men? And why don't you start your own band? And I said, well, none of the people I would want would be in it. And um, she said, well, you know, but I decided to ask him and I asked Pat. He said, yes. Uh, and I didn't really know him that well at that point. I mean, we'd seen each other around a lot, but I always felt like there was a little bit of a, I mean, maybe on my side or maybe on both sides, or maybe this is totally my imagination. I always felt a little bit of a rivalry as far as our friendship with Darby. And it was a rivalry that I had no, no chance to win. You know, Darby was his left hand. I mean, Pat was Darby's left hand man. And I was just a guy that was friends with him for a little while. But, um, but we had like a sort of a, a, uh, just a cautious relationship or, or just a little bit distant, but then I, but I, had, by the end of the germs, I had really come to spot um, something really special in his playing, really, really special in his playing. And you know, you can tell from listening to the germs record, he's super accurate, he's super tight, and super creative. And I had sort of spotted that, and uh, and I thought, well, of all the guitar players on the scene. I want to want to play with him. And I know he's doing 45 grave. I think he might've been doing the adolescence also, mm -hmm. but when I asked him, he said, yes. So we started twisted roots. Okay. So twisted roots is going, do you know much about uh, the project he had death folk with Gary Jacoby? Uh, that was a little bit later after, you know, the, the incarnation of twisted roots with Pat and Maggie was very short lived. It was a super, in, it was a flammable combination of personalities and it was quickly over. And I went back, I think I was, what did I do? I went, I was, I, I, that broke up and I got Pat in um, the Nina Hagen band and we were setting up a, a tour. Uh, we were getting ready to go on tour. And so we we're kind of getting ready to kind of being in the Nina Hagen band at that time was, you kind of got to play rock star a little bit. So, um, and I wanted to pad into that band and I thought Pat would be a great, addition to that band but the, her management and the record company did not see like how great he was because he can't play like 
I don't know what people thought. You know, I remember when we were auditioning guitarists for the Inaga Band, they had Robbie Krieger come down and uh, the guitarist from the Beach Boys. They had these really normal, typical guitar players that they felt secure about because she was a major label artist. So Pat, uh, I got Pat in the band, and like we were in New York, we we're getting ready to go on tour, and they like fired him like the day before the tour practically, and that's when I just quit the band. Wow. Um, so I, I was just, but you know, I came back to LA and I started a new version of Twisted Roots, and Pat wasn't in it. I think Pat didn't want to be in the band unless Maggie was in the band, and Maggie wanted to do a solo career. So um, I got a, a, a new drummer. Gary Jacoby was the drummer that we got. Uh, I guess actually we got Gary when Pat and Maggie were still together. So um, Gary and Pat later started the Death Folk, but I think that was my recollection of that. Well, it might have started around '83 or '84. I, I thought it was a little bit later than that, but I could be wrong. What about the band Vagina Dentata? There's literally nothing really about that band to be found anywhere. Yeah, well, and again, this is all the same people. You know, I think Gary was playing drums for that band. And Michelle, who was the singer from um, that I had got to replace Maggie, was the singer from that band. And I think Tim Ferriss might have been the bass player. And later on, Gary and Tim um, and Pat went on to do, oh, I don't know if Pat was, they did Celebrity Skin. Yeah, he so was, Tim he was in an do, early version of it for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they went and started Celebrity Skin. I mean, some of that, I say this, I don't know if this is actually true, but I had the feeling sometimes that some of those bands um, were like, fuck Paul, we're going to get all the people that used to play with Paul and start a band. <laughs> um, I thought that was Vagina Dentata, but I don't know if that, it was kind of like, wait a minute, that was my singer and you were my guitarist. You know, in the first half of the 80s, we did a lot of different permutations of Twisted Roots, and so there was, there was, Maggie singing, then Michelle was singing, and then for a minute I was singing, and Pat got back in the band, and Pat didn't want Kira in the band, so I, got, I mean, it was it was a it was a soap opera for sure. Yeah. And Vagina Dentata was kind of a split off right at that same time. It was kind of like Twisted Roots, but fuck Paul. And I got to say, the demos they were fantastic. They were really great. I mean, you know, me writing all the songs like Twisted Roots sort of turned into is kind of uh, they were doing something much more interesting and aggressive and i was kind of exploring what is it like you know if a punk rocker who's a piano player does elton john is it still punk rock and i was doing weird experiments along those lines which you know could have been great but i don't i don't honestly think i was particularly successful on my end so pat would come and go he was in the early twisted roots he's in the later twisted roots he's in the giant and all this shit happened very quickly, probably from between 80 and 85. Yeah. Well, I, I have to disagree with you on that one. That second Twisted Roots record in particular, which I think came out around the same time as this Ruth and Smear record uh, with Bruce Duff and Dez um, and Del Hopkins. I really like that record. That's oh, a... that makes me really, really, really happy because that's like just Paul. Everybody just gives Paul his way, kind of, you know? <laughs> And uh, sometimes I think the demos were raw. One of the things about, if you're going to do this Elton John punk rock thing, one of the things like um, was like it, the, the little bit of a lo-fi punk production might have been good. And that's how the demos were. And actually, Pat played on some of those demos. Oh, really? And I, what, I got a, a record deal with CD Presents. And they were basically, they had their own studio. And they said, you could use the studio as much as you want. 
I spent a lot of time. We really polished that record up. And sometimes I feel, so this is all kind of just like philosophy. Sometimes I think if I would have kept it very raw, it would have been a little bit more, you know, but it, I was, you know, probably my whole life to be able to spend a lot of time in the studio has always been my, my goal, you know? So I was learning, I was learning to, um, what, how, you know, what a studio, what production means and, Stuff that I know now as a producer would, wouldn't have even been on my radar, you know? Yeah. You should put those demos up on your SoundCloud. Huh. I have to track them down. I mean, they're like on cassettes, and they're like um, they're like on four tracks, and they're pretty raw. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, maybe somewhere in between the two, you know, would have been good. But Yeah. And the record company was kind of egging me on. They thought I was doing – they thought they had a, a – possibility of doing something commercial you know right and they were really egging me on they were like first it was kind of with drum machines and then like overdub drums and polish 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 and hey you know if it would have like been big we would have all looked like geniuses but um but i'm glad someone likes it I, I thought there were some things on there that i am proud of i think it's about 50 50 you know and it's like there's like about half that record kind of makes me cringe but <laughs> yeah okay so the ruth and smear record then how did you guys come together for that record? Did Pat approach you and say, I'm doing this record. Can you help me with it? No, not, not at all. We, you know, uh, I always would borrow people's four tracks and, um, and I guess it was probably 85 or so. And, um, I would, I would always just, cause like recording studio is just like my, that's like you know, the aquarium I want to live in. Right. And, um, so if I, if I can't get in a recording studio, I've got some kind of, I have some kind of home recording and I had, um, I had a four track and I just started going over to Pat's house and just, rec we just started recording together just for fun. It, it, it was very organic. I think might, we might've been, we were recording some of the songs that turned into that album, like world war two, some of the songs that turned into that, that twisted roots album we we're talking about world war two. And, and he was, uh, uh, I think, um, what else did he, he uh, was off of that album? A couple songs off that album. We were, we were doing that. And then we started doing his songs, you know, and, um, he's not really a songwriter at all, but he comes up with, he comes up with stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, he needed an environment where the idea for a song would have time to gestate into a full song, you know? And four tracks are great for that. Come over, lay down some kind of beat with the drum machine, um, put down the guitar, you know, and then like, oh, well, we need vocals now. And a lot, he wasn't really writing lyrics. So a lot of the lyrics were written by his girlfriend or Michelle Bell or this other girl named Tari. He would just have this, this like piece of paper with some lyrics. And then I wrote about, I wrote three or four of the lyrics too. And then he would sing them. So uh, we we demoed out that whole album on four tracks at his house, hmm. just organically. The whole and record. then I went to, um, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, all the songs that are on that, all the songs that are on Ruth and Smear we demoed. Wow. And in some some of those the demos are, you know, they're you know, great things about those demos too, and they're very much a lot of the same sounds. I was I just got a sampler like, our first time I'd ever tried sampling and. Um, and um, Greg Ginn lent me a Lindrum machine, so and so the Lindrum programming wound up going on the record and recreating the samples. Like instead of just playing a regular piano, I would sample a piano and right. then play it on the sampler, and it would sound different. 
keyboard bass. I don't think there was hardly any real bass on that whole album. Yep. You know, I would just do that. So yeah, basically the the, the eight tracks after we had recorded them, like I and I love that material. I mean, I love like every song on that on on the Ruthless album. I think it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, original, um, special. Now, granted, it's 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 so unorthodox the way it's put together i think some people's ears it might be really difficult to digest maybe and it may just plain sound wrong but uh i i just um so i was really excited about the recordings we were making and i think i, I called up mike watt and i was just like dude i'm like recording this pat stuff you should put it out you know because he had he had new alliance at the time right and so at first they were calling it the paul and pat record and i was like it's really not it's it's you know, I'm like, it's, I'm really, it's really Pat's record. I'm there to like facilitate this and make this happen. And like, what would it be like if Pat Smear just got to do whatever he wanted? You know, everybody thinks he's, all they've ever heard is the germs. And what would it be like? I know he loves Yes and I know he loves Queen. And would that come out? You know, it was like this really fascinating exploration. And when it was, when we got pretty far into it and I'd recorded all those songs, I was really excited and I talked to Mike about it and Mike wanted to do it. And then, um, I guess he talked to Greg in and SST stepped in and said they wanted to do it. Well, let's talk about some of these tracks. It starts with a song called Sahara hotel. Yeah. Nina Hagen is on this track. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, because, you know, we had been playing with Nina. Mm -hmm. We had been playing with Nina, um, at the time, and I can't remember if we recorded. I think we actually recorded after he'd been kicked out of the band. But maybe she felt bad or whatever. But I know she always loved Pat. And it was sort of a, a record company politics thing that had forced her to do that. So uh, it was, I think maybe it was kind of as a, as a, um, just as a favor because he had, um, he had, uh, you know, had been kind of treated really badly right. and unfairly. And I think it was a big mistake too because Pat, um, obviously there is no band that can pat there's a reason that pat has been in nirvana and the foo fighters yeah you know dave Grohl is, a, is an excellent musician and he is not gonna you have to, there's a lot of people that would like that gig and it's not just because pat's fun and a nice guy and cool pat is a really stunning musician to work with so yeah she she came in and did those vocals and it was uh, a, a great way to start the record and the guitar from that song i remember he had recorded on a cassette and he was like, I don't think I can play it again. So he just took his guitar track off of the cassette <laughs> and used that as the basis for the whole song. Oh, cool. You wrote the lyrics to this song. So what's it about? What it, What's the Sahara Hotel? I think I was talking about someone with a drug problem. You know, you're not supposed to tell people. You're supposed to let people project that stuff. Right. But as I recall, <laughs> I mean, enough time has gone by where I don't mind saying that it was a lame pun where i was like oh that's the place you go to dry out you know so it's kind of like a rehab maybe okay maybe a rehab <laughs> <laughs> uh, and i forgot that that was what it was about for probably quite a while and then i remembered oh yeah that's what i was that's what i was messing around with <laughs> you uh you mentioned the guitar track you can hear the brian may influence all over yeah, the guitar diminished play. chords yeah half diminished chords i mean it was the rhythm guitar part, which has this beautiful, lazy feel. And, you know, it's just like a, that's one of those things you just, you really try to discourage someone from doing because it's going to be 
there's going to be cassette hiss and it's just like, come on, man, play it again, you know? Right. But, um, one thing from working with Pat over and over and over, and this is like, this is like one of the most important things about working with him and my admiration for him over and over. He'll say, I want to do this. And you'll say, you, you can't really do that's not allowed. <laughs> and then he'll say, well, just do it and you'll see. Right. And he's always right. <laughs> it works. It, it, he, he's that kind of musician. And I will tell you as we go through these songs, other examples of that. Okay. Let's talk about the next track, Golden Boys. What's the history of that song? So I think that was going to be a germ song, and I think Darby had written, or maybe a Darby Crash Band song, and I think Pat had written the music, and uh, Darby had written the words, but I don't think they played it with the Darby Crash Band. I'm not sure if it had ever been performed up until we started recording it, but those, Darby had written the lyrics, had the music and I just threw the Lindrum on and um, Pat laid down the chords and you know it's a it's just a fucking amazing song you know it's like <laughs> okay that's so so those are the first two songs on the record we're doing good so far we're doing you know? good so far and then I know <laughs> yeah exactly and and I think it's been covered by a couple different bands too aside from from our version yeah I think No Effects has covered it for sure oh, yeah. oh it's amazing yeah uh, Michelle Bell, um, mm -hmm. I think, wrote some of the lyrics as well. Oh, on Golden Boys? Yeah. She's credited on the LP anyways. Maybe she it says additional words. Maybe she kind of beefed up the, the lyrics a little bit or it something. Maybe, it's maybe true. It, you know, she was, her nickname in the punk scene was Gerber, by the way. So if people are okay. trying to connect dots. <laughs> I, um, I'm, I've heard of Gerber I, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and she was she was my sister's best friend in junior high school before um, before we ever punk rock ever started. Back when we were still the Darby Cult, which were I guess people would have seen us as the Bowie Freaks. Uh, we were like um, Gerber was and my sister Kira were hanging around, but they were still in junior high school. And uh, so I knew Michelle really really well. She was practically like a member of my family. And then she did gotten vagina and taught us, so she was around writing lyrics and uh yeah she uh so she could have easily contributed to that i hadn't i don't think i realized that she had uh darby might have been a verse short odonora who's odonora okay so who are the lyrics credited to on that uh deborah patino oh debbie patino okay razebra so, uh yeah yeah she's from razebra okay so so i don't know what those lyrics are about all i know is again <laughs> This incredible, glammy type of chord progression, um, and um, you know that someone writes something like that, and it, it's just so unexpected. I think I'm doing like a wah wah keyboard that's just going along with it, going, which sort of blends with this crazy guitar, and the whole thing is just going together. And yet there's these incredible chord changes underneath it. Yeah, it's a really cool song. And then it segues into Blue Punk, the, the unfortunately named Blue Punk Funk. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about uh, someone else who plays on that song, Peyton Balsara. Do you know who that is? Well, Pat Balsara is, is, was, was the name Pat was going by for a while. And uh, Balsara, okay. was Fre Balsara was Freddie Mercury's last name. Okay. Probably a pseudonym so, for Pat um, then. What is Peyton credited with? Bass. <laughs> 
Oh, on Blue Punk Funk? No, on Odinora. Is there a bass on there even? Pat must have played bass on there. Maybe. Maybe Pat played bass, yeah. yeah. It's possible. Okay. Um, Lots of experimentation going on in that song. Like, again, with the pre-production, how much of that, like, that's a pretty faithful recreation of what you would have done on the four-track recordings? Yeah, it was, it, that's one of the ones that was a little better on the four-track. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just there was a few things, but I, I'd have to listen, I'd have to A B them. But yeah, we are we are really trying to exactly replicate um, the stuff we did. You know, you fill you fill up three tracks on the four track, and you bounce it down, right. and you yep. have three fresh ones. So, yep. um, you know, it's basically guitar key. We may not have even had a bass on Blue Punk Funk. There's a um, a sampled voice that's the bass. Oh, right. like yep. I, we. You know, that's doing the bass. And I did that in the on the four track first. So, yeah, that was the thing. Um, the demos were so like that. It was so exciting. You could see why I was just walking around just going, my God, you know, everybody knows the germs. Everybody knows 45 grade. This is something what we're doing is right. You know, it's really easy to digest. There was a punk scene. There was the screamers and the germs and the weirdos. And, you know, it's very, and then the Germans, Garby died, and then 45 Grades started. That's all right in rock and roll, like right out of like a rock and roll magazine, you know? But when two guys get together in their living room and start making crazy, weird demos, nobody's really that interested in it. But I'll tell you what, the guys making the demos are fucking as excited as they were when they were playing in the, in the band, you know? For sure, yeah. So we, we were, we were, I was just really enthralled to what was ha- enthralled by what was happening um, with this music. And uh, really, when they said they were going to put us into Radio Tokyo to record it, it was really just try to replicate what we've already done. Is and you know, except now we have eight tracks instead of four. Right. Paul's vocals. He really like seems to be straining at the very top of his register. That's not a criticism, by the way. I think it adds to the vocal style. But was that difficult for him to do? Well, he, as far as I know, he had never sang with any band. Yeah. Right. So this was what I will say was the um, the the abandon and the fearlessness that he just went. I think that for some people, I, I'm glad that you said that the, the vocals are palatable for you i think for some people that's a deal breaker on that record for me it's like he's in tune and he's singing with a lot of inflection i mean you know was it hard for him it was as hard as it sounds because it's not like we were doing 10 takes and comping and using autotune like i do now i mean that's him going for it and um (laughs) you know and yes of course he's writing these he's writing these baroque melodies you know and it's like look, that's where the melody goes. I got to get up there somehow, you know. What about, you know, the aspect of his personality maybe? Like, you know, he seems like, although, like you say, he's played in two very famous bands, he seems like he kind of avoids the spotlight. It Was it hard for him to put himself out there like that, vocally? Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I Yeah, I think that was... Um, it's one of those things, man. It's like um, when someone does something like that, and like it's like maybe there's another example. You know, when Pat just 
I want, I'm going to sing this record. I was like, perfect. It's a Pat record. You should sing it. And when he just goes for it like that, it's one of those things where I just had to stand back and go, amazing. You know, like, the, because it really came from, no, it came from, how old were we? He was maybe, we were maybe 25. It came from, he, he'd been playing in bands for five or six years. He'd been in a band with Darby. He'd been in a band with Dinah Cancer. And basically going, well, they could do it. I can do it. Right. You know, Darby wasn't a singer. He did it. And he, what he did was he just used the voice he had. And same with Dinah Cancer, just used the voice he had. So maybe that's it. But it was so out of the blue. You know, there was nothing to prepare me for it. Or I will say his mom, I believe, is an opera singer. So um, there was probably singing in the house, you know, and I think that's another reason probably why music came. So I think music came pretty easily to him. Right. You know, I think he picked up things up pretty quickly because uh, I don't I don't remember. I remember in high school, I missed everything because I was practicing, <laughs> but I don't remember Pat doing that. Right. And yet he's 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 great and so much of it is his imagination but yes i think there's a real fearlessness and a real courage to just opening your mouth and letting fly like that and i was i was pretty blown away when he did it for sure okay the next track princess you're playing piano on that one linda mack Mm -hmm. is on drums they sound programmed to me though uh do you know what yeah linda 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 mack is the is the linda (laughs) that's what i thought all the all the drums on there are, are the Lin drum um, yeah. that Greg Ginn lent me, and I'm not playing the piano. I'm playing a sampled note on the piano. Okay. Um, so that's why it's kind of really weird and strange. And again, that was something that we did, and um, you know, we did on the demo. So we we're like, we don't want just a regular piano sound. We want a we want a, like a strange altered piano sound. And that's another one where Pat did something like he does, where we're, we're making the demo at home. And he's like, okay, now, so you, first thing you do is you lay down the drum machine, right? Then I do the piano, or he does a guitar, and then he says, okay, I want you to erase the drums from, from 45 seconds to 1 minute and 13 seconds. And I'm like, wait, wait, are you sure? Because once I've erased them, they're gone. Are you, are you sure you want to do that? He goes, yeah, yeah, just do it. He's so funny. It's like, he doesn't even act like he's act, asking for a weird thing. It's just like <laughs> it's okay, not weird in his mind, right? <laughs> no, he sees like, it. That's what, yeah, that's how the song goes. Yeah. So erase those drums. <laughs> so um, and you know, of course, that's that's how the song goes. He's just he just had the vision before I did. Right. At the end of that song, it sounds like there's maybe like a triple X, an R-rated sample or something. Yeah, I think it's Tracy Lords. Is Tracy Lords a porn star yeah. from the seven eighties? Yeah, yeah, I think it's Tracy. He he had a Tracy Lords obsession, as I recall. <laughs> okay. So, um, <laughs> and oh. I think that Gerber Gerber wrote the lyrics to that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She wrote those lyrics on a sheet. Yeah, I, I, not a sheet of paper, a bed sheet. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, on a bed sheet, and he got the lyrics. I'm not sure if they were meant to be lyrics. They might have been just a message, but... Right. Gotcha. Okay, flip the record over. Magic Candle, Tragic Canary. It's a, yeah. It seems like one, just based on the liner notes, that you you and Pat worked on really closely together, maybe. Well, they were all the same. Yeah. All the songs were the same. Like, 
um, he would write a piece of music and then he'd say, I need lyrics for this one. And there wasn't a lyric lying around from Gerber or from, uh, you know, his girlfriend at the time, Jenna, or there was just not a lyric lying around. So he would look through my notebooks. It was back when I would keep notebooks and I had all kinds of lyrics. And he would pick something that never was going to be a song. Like, I think Blue Punk Funk was one of those. Um, I think Sahara Hotel was one of those. And I'm pretty sure that um, Magic Candle was one of those also, um, where he just found a lyric that he thought would fit. And, and he would say interesting stuff, I, like stuff I never made. He goes, I want the melody to sound like a nursery rhyme. And I'd be like, what does that mean? And then I realized, oh, most of the melodies from most rock and roll songs are, are nursery rhymes, actually. It's just a super simple... Right. You can see how excited I get talking about this project. And it's kind of why I wanted to do this interview since you didn't want to talk about it because I'm all about creativity and the magic of being in the process of creating art. It's just where I live. It's where I, it's my job, what I do all day. Yeah. And, um, and that one, that the making of that record is like, it was great to learn the screamer songs and the screamers were one of the greatest live bands and the screamer shows were so incredible, but there was, the, the recording of the Screamers was, you know, what recordings we did wasn't magical. It was very perfunctory. It was like, play the song, point the mics at the band, you know? Yeah. This was like pulling these songs out and developing them, both with the sonics, with samples and keyboards and drum machines, and then just his pure imagination, you know? It was really, uh, it was one of the, and I've had a, I've had a lot of the, it was such a great experience. It's kind of what I've chased my whole life is, experience of being in the studio and just having these magical, surprising, exciting things happen, you know? For sure. I mean, you can tell when you listen to this record that it was a total creative explosion. And I, I mean, I feel like you personally were just starting to get into maybe like the notion that engineering and producing is something you really wanted to pursue. I mean, I, I would say this is probably the first record I kind of produced because I, I don't think there's really another name for it or co-produced with Pat, right. I guess co-produced or, but I did, I guess like I sort of stop um, chopping things up into uh, different categories and just call it making music. Right. And sometimes I have different roles, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm just pushing the buttons and sometimes I'm writing the thing and sometimes I'm just facilitating the thing, but it was kind of, one of the early experiences of being a facilitator and almost being kind of invisible to the process, there's something kind of rewarding about it, you know? Yeah. Being a little behind the scenes. I mean, I wish I've later, sometimes I wish that um, people knew I had a bigger role on that record because there's that side of it also. There's the side of it where, well, God, you wanted to be in Nirvana and, and, uh, Everybody should know that I that I had a big yeah. part in this record, but that's like I don't think that's really the ascendant side. I think the ascendant side is what a cool secret I have <laughs> that I was there to be be there for this record. I feel like this would have been a good calling card for you, like <laughs> you know, like look what I did, hire me. <laughs> well, it was funny because um, you know at the time. Pat was working at the SST Superstore and he wasn't really playing in any bands. I mean, you know, he, he was really in a really, had really reached a, 
you know, by the time Kurt called him, he wasn't doing that much. Right. He was always a guy. He was always a guy. Like my dedication to music is, I'm going to do it every day, like all day, you know. And he was the kind of guy that's like, you know, I'm going to quit this band now because I don't want to. I don't feel like being in 45 Grave anymore. Now I just I want to do something different. I want to stay home and I'm really into General Hospital. I'm going to watch soap <laughs> operas and it's cutting into you know. But and that sounds funny. It sounds almost like I'm putting him down, but I kind of admire it. It's for sure. It's like I've I've taken this as far as it's going to go. I kind of want to do something else right now. You know. He's not scared to move on. Most people would be scared to make a choice like that. I think. Yeah, I think it's true, and I, I think um, that might have been how the germs ended. Even even with the germs, I think he I think that the band got together. I mean, I don't know ex- the exact mechanics of the breaking up of it, but. Um, uh, I don't think they liked Don. I think that was a lot of it. But um, but yeah, Pat, uh, and even to the point where early on, it was almost like, you know, we have a show tonight. I just, and I really don't want to play this show. <laughs> it would <laughs> even be, there were even on, on occasion, I think there were even maybe some shows that he was just like, you know, I'm just going to get so drunk I can't even play this because I don't want to be there. <laughs> so very, very free, much more such a left hemisphere kind of guy for me. I'm like compared, you know, to me, like I, I'm, I have like reasons for everything and all this <laughs> bullshit, bullshit rationality. And Pat's like so spontaneous yeah. in his thinking. So creative. Okay. I want to just make sure I ask you about everybody who performed on this record. Uh, this magic handle tragic canary song, uh, has someone named Jula bell credited as backing vocals. Do you know who that is? Yeah, Jula Bell. What was her band called? Yeah, she had been. She was dating Des for a while. I wish I could. Uh, I don't want to get the name of her band wrong, but uh, she was a friend of Pat's. I mean, she was close. I didn't know her that well. Bulimia Banquet. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that was the name of her band, right? You know, I'm not sure how she. And she's on that song. I remember on Gentle Axe, we wanted to get a lot of people on there. Yeah. But um. I mean, we had to move really quick. We were like, I think we were in Radio Tokyo two days. Oh, really? Two, yeah, I think we had two days to track everything. Wow. And, um, and I think <laughs> You must have last, been really well, going for it. <laughs> that was SST, you know? Yeah. You, you like, everything was fast. And, and this was a little different, but, you know, you don't have to set up the drums. You just have to plug in the drum machine. And um, so that goes quick, but... Uh, and I remember on Gentle Axe, we wanted a lot of voices, so I can't really recall Zula Bell's role there. Okay. Uh, the next track, The Area of the Circle, we've got Diggy Roots yeah. on harp. Who's that? Uh, that's me. Okay. Makes sense. And words by <laughs> Harry and Kristen Farrelly. Yeah, Kristen Farrelly, was, her name was Hari. Um, oh, okay. We called her Hari. So. Same person. So that was just a friend. Um you know, uh, a friend of Pat's. I didn't know where she came from. She wasn't really a punk rock girl. I don't. I don't know where they met. Maybe they met at Jesus School. I. I have no idea where she came from. But um, she was uh, writing lyrics. I think I used tried to use write to her lyrics as well at one point. Very avant-garde track, like in an awesome way. I was going to ask. Do you think SST kind of knew what they were getting <laughs> with this album? But you said you know that they had heard the demos. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. They knew exactly what was happening. And, you know, around the same time, I, had, I I was making these four tracks. I was making some four tracks of my own, and I had a collection of songs 
that I had recorded at home. And I go, well, these are the songs that will never come out on any record ever. They were instrumental songs. And I thought, well, I'll send them to Greg Ginn. And Greg Ginn, here's the songs that no one is ever going to hear. And he goes, yeah, go ahead in the studio and record it. And that was the abominable album. <laughs> so, so SST, I mean, hats off to Greg Ginn. And I think that's why nobody ever got paid was because whatever money came in, Greg was like funding some new project. And the early projects made money and a lot of the early later ones didn't. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, so, um, so he's ripped, he apparently not, I don't know this for a fact, but from what I understand, everybody was robbed, but it was for a good cause. It was sort of, a, it was like he was Robin Hood. That's one way, one way of looking at it for sure. <laughs> The next song, the Xmas song. Christmas song. You know, I just want to say about Area of the Circle, a lot of sure. samples on that one, as I recall. Oh, yeah. And acoustic guitar. It's, yeah, it's a very, very strange, uh, very very beautiful and strange. You know, and what, what, who on SST was doing anything like that? Yeah, for Really sure. different. Yeah. Yeah, Christmas song, um, it's kind of like a big dance number in a way. Yeah. Words by you Jenna. Know, Pat, that was his. Um, that was his longtime girlfriend at the time. Okay, I think she did the cover art for the first Twisted Roots single, actually. Yes, yes, she did. Yeah, she was. They were. Um, they were an item for quite some time. Uh, I think almost up until the time he got in Nirvana. Yeah, she did our flyers for Twisted Roots, and she did. Um, she did our artwork and stuff. The uh, music writing is credited to Sandra Christensen. Do you know who that is? That was uh, a girl. She went to music, huh, they say? Well, there was a girl that for a while we were, uh, and we were also making four tracks with this girl. They had almost an album of, of four tracks. I think we were thinking about starting a, a Twisted Roots with a third lead singer, okay. <laughs> or a fourth lead singer, I don't know. <laughs> or maybe it would have been called something else. We might have been trying to think about another name. But I think that Pat had found Sandra, and I think yeah, I think she, I guess she wrote the verses of that. Um, I'm surprised she didn't write the words though, because. Uh, but yeah, she was. Uh, boy, you're really bringing back a lot of memories. We were working with her for six months or a year and did a bunch of. Uh, I think the first demo of that she might have sang on, and then he replaced them with his, for the record. Okay, that song in particular has some wild guitar playing on it. Like there's for yeah. sure guitar playing on here that satisfied any Germs fans that you you know might have been expecting raunchy guitar playing. Yeah, except except it is different. I mean, you know, it's like a dance groove. Yeah. You know, I I, I think that. Um, I mean, I know I wasn't really influenced by Public Image. You know, like the, the next wave of after the first wave of punk bands. Um, I think public image reminded us that the point wasn't that there was a certain sound. And I think we got that. I think we, you know, bands like the dread beats and the screamers were really clear that, um, there is not a rule book for punk rock and, and the germs in a way created a, a rule book that a lot of people, I think they're one of the, I mean, I, I would, I, I feel like a lot of bands like even black flag. I feel like that lexicon devil, um, single was, um, the song is kind of is kind of a Ramones riff in there that's played like it's 
like no one's ever played it. Right. And that turned into basically the beginning of like 5,000 Black Flag, Circle Jerks, <laughs> TSOL, you know, yeah. songs. So, so even the Germans, which now, by now, it sounds like, oh yeah, I know what kind of music that is. That's sort of like early hardcore. But, you know, there was no hardcore. So it was really like, so, um, and then I think with Twisted Roots, we were really like looking like, well, we're definitely punk rockers. We're in the biggest, we're the biggest early punk bands. What if we don't do punk rock at all? Is it still punk rock? Because we are punk rockers. It's got, it must be, right? Yeah. Because so Christmas song, I always think of it as a big dance groove, you know, but yeah, he does. And I always thought that that was important on this, on that album to um, try to capture um, his guitar playing because you know that's what he was known for yeah i mean it wound up being it's more important to capture his pure creativity but his guitar playing is so stunning sometimes you just have to showcase it yeah and i mean like you know you mentioned queen and yes and i can hear the influence for sure but there's a real pop element to a lot of these songs like i can hear like bad finger for example in some of these songs <laughs> Maybe I think um, when we when we tip over. Oh, you know what was the other band that he was that he, um, and this was slightly Queen and Yes was in high school, but by the time we were doing this period, the band he was obsessed with. And by the word obsessed, I mean I actually I mean that literally. He would he would listen to nothing but one band, twenty four hours a day over and over. And the Beatles, yeah. he was just obsessed with the Beatles when we were. Uh, when we were doing this and a lot of these ideas I think um, he was like you can hear the George Harrison chords in there you know yeah. you know Queen and, and they, Queen and George Harrison both dropped some of those chords in so um, so when you say Badfinger what you meant to say was Beatles sure <laughs> <laughs> right okay Eyes and Hearts again with the guitar playing like he's just shredding in, the, in this song I feel like this is you know, I feel like he kind of didn't do this maybe so much in the later bands as a, as a lead guitar uh, player, kind of. Yeah, he was really, a, he's really found a niche as a, as a um, rhythm guitar player. And I got to say, um, you know, I, I, I record a lot of guitar players and I think that um, the right hand of a guitar player, which is basically the drum part of it, the rhythm part of it, is a really, really mystical part of the of the everybody pays attention to what notes you're playing with your left hand with your fingers on the fretboard but the right hand is all your dynamics and your rhythm and i always thought pat you know has one of the most incredible right hands of anybody i've ever played with you know the other person i've seen where you just go my god look at his right hand i i, I was in a band and we opened for keith richards in um, rotterdam and keith richards he did a three-hour sound check and he did a three-hour set and his right hand was within a ten thousandth of a second of where it was supposed to be for the entire night. I mean, and what we're talking about is groove, you know, groove and pocket is what how we is the musical terms that we use. And Pat's right hand, so it's okay that he's focuses on rhythm. You know, he never really practiced a whole bunch shredding like Eddie Van Halen, but you know, I mean, he heard it. You know, he heard it. But, you know, the thing about iHeart is not those shredding guitars. On the four track, what was like, and I think we I think we were able to reproduce it on the, I, we may not have done it on the other album, though. But he would, uh, even though I only had four tracks, he would insist 
that he wanted a little guitar sliding down in harmony, and I wanted it to be first in one ear and then on the other ear. So it's essentially four tracks for one tiny little guitar arrangement that almost nobody could ever hear, you know? I always remember, and I, you know, I don't think, I think we decided that when he went in and did the, that one, with the, the, the demo was different on iHeart. He wanted it to be more the shredding song. And in a way I was disappointed, but I, I think it's such a gorgeous song. I mean, I actually thought about covering that song. It's just, it's just a, it's perfect yeah. the way it's written. Which band were you in that opened for the Stones? Uh, it was a singer-songwriter named Mark Curry, okay. who was on, and it was the Stones. Yeah. Was the, yeah, I know who he is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's no effects crowd. Um, yeah, Aaron from, uh, uh, El Jefe from no effects was the guitarist. Okay. And we, um, and it was not the Stones, it was Keith Richards. Oh, so the, the expensive winos, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. either the expensive winers yeah. and the New Barbarians, one of those. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, a Gentle Axe, the last track that you said, this is the one, like, it seems like this was also a, you know, one of those records where Pat really wanted to get a bunch of his friends on the record as well, you and Pat. Um, well, we wanted a big crowd of people, for sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those names on there writing lyrics, you needed lyrics from somewhere. Right. And um, But I think that's a really, it's very John Cage- David Bowie randomness to just find some page that some girl you know wrote some like love poem and say okay I'm going to use this you know just kind of casually yeah this will kind of fit yeah um so I it was actually there was not a lot of people at the um, sessions and there was and most of these recordings were done with just me and him but um he did we did want to really um, the general acts it does the same thing over and over at the end. And um, we wanted it to get bigger and bigger and bigger and have more and more people. So I think that was like the last thing we recorded was, so by the end of the second day, you know, there was some extra people there to, um, and layer it up with as many tracks as we could. Yeah, I guess you're right. When you take all the pseudonyms out, like, and the jokes like Linda Mack and Diggy Roots, it's basically you and you and Paul and the writing credits. Yeah, me and Pat. You know, or you and Pat, sorry. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. it's me and Pat, and yeah. I think Tim Ferriss. I remember Tim Ferriss being down there. I I don't remember Jula vaguely. I, I can't quite put my finger on it. But yeah, it was really just the two of us working frantically to replicate what we had done at his house. <laughs> You're doing vocals, I think, on a gentle axe, predominantly. Uh, well, he sings. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing. I think I maybe did background vocals in other places, but. In that one, um, uh, he sings the front. He sings the first part, and then um, when it comes to the ostinato, the coda, the thing that repeats over and over, um, we uh, we both sang on it, and I think we had a few other people sing on it. Okay, and it sounds like you sampled some seashore sounds. Oh, uh, what was that sound effect? He had a yeah. He had a sound effect, I think, on a cassette. That might have been on the four track too, actually. Okay. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a there's a, a sound effect there, yeah. And that was another one. He looked through my notebook. He found the lyrics, and and I I don't know if I could have ever written music to that, but uh, the way he fit that to music is just stunning. It's just a little fragment of poetry, 
And it, it just is exactly to me, to me, it's just exactly right. It's beautiful. Yeah. You wield a gentle ax to the doors of your cage, which I could have written that and never ever used in a thousand years. I mean, the way he used it, it's, uh, it's like, uh, one of my favorite lyrics ever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what did people make of this record? Did it get good reviews? Did people dig it? Um, I mean, I feel like at that point, SST was just putting out records and, and just like putting them out. And the only people they were putting them out to were the SST fans. And um, I think SST was starting to go into its decline, was really starting to, um, I think um, they were definitely, I think that record was released in 87. It came out at the same time I released, the same year, <laughs> So this is why it's hard to answer your question. The same year that record came out, that Twisted Roots album came out that I sang on that we talked about. Yeah, yeah. My Abominable album came out on SST. A DC, the DC3 live album came out the same year. Yep. Um, I believe the um, Crimeny record came out that year. I mean, I had like six, <laughs> six or seven albums come out the same year. And I really thought, I think that was the year, I, I think it was, if it was 87, I, was, I turned 29. And I really thought, like, wow, when this comes out, I'm going to be famous. When all these records come out at the same time, I'm going to be famous. And these years of poverty and struggle, it's all going to be, have been worth it. And I'm going to really, and, you know, all those records came out and just crickets. <laughs> That's my recollection of it. Okay. That's my recollection of it. <laughs> you have to tell me about the cover of this record. It's an amazing cover. Is that a real parrot? Oh, Pat, that, Pat had parrots. Oh, really? <laughs> Pat, Pat lived in a, a tiny single apartment for years and years. Um, I mean, basically the mattress almost filled up the whole room. And the rest of the room was filled up by two huge cages full of parrots. Wow. So, yes, he was a big, big parrot fanatic. And um, <laughs> those were his babies. Okay. Is the parrot wearing a cape? <laughs> <laughs> very possibly um, because parrots are amazing I don't know if you've ever had one but they're, no. they're very intelligent they become very tame they're not little birds you know they're kind of big birds so you, you can put a cape on a parrot they'll, they'll put up with it <laughs> alright um, do you have the record in front of you by, by any chance I don't I have a copy of it somewhere I'm looking at the back cover it's quite the collage yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Nina's in there. Um, there's some Twisted Roots pictures. I, you know, I, I should have pulled it out. I have it here somewhere. That's okay. We'll have fun. Um, we'll have fun guessing who everyone is. Um, it's going to be hard, isn't it? I wonder, yeah. <laughs> is, it on, is it on the um, internet? Let me see. Yeah, it's on the internet. It's on Discogs. Uh, oh, there it is. Okay, I got it. Um, oh, boy. It's you can kind of see it. All right. You want to know who these people are? I see Tracy Lourdes in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I see Jenna. You know the picture from The Germs, the back cover of The Germs album? It's in the lower left-hand corner. Yeah. Black and white picture. Yeah. Just to the right is a picture of him and Jenna. Okay. Mostly these are all Pat. Yeah. There's a oh, lot of Pat. Re Regiment Regimental wearing the... In the um, center on the left side, there's a kid in a red shirt wearing a um, white bandana. Yeah. 
Who's Reggie Mendel? Reggie um, was a friend of ours who actually went to jail for a very long time for murder. Um, but the murder was actually in self-defense. He was, he was, but you know, he was a big skinhead looking punk guy and, um, nobody wanted to listen to the fact that he was being attacked and killed the guy. And, but, um, Hmm. but at least that's the story. And he's, I know he's out of jail now. He's a very, very sweet sweet guy. Mm -hmm. I think I see Gary Jacoby and Gerber. Those look like, uh, the death or the um vagina dentata picture maybe right there where are you oh there is one picture of me with uh, my head is right underneath nina hagen do you see nina yeah i do yeah i'm right underneath her he didn't really put me forward very much considering i'm i'm acting like i had this huge hand in the in this thing (laughs) (laughs) well you did for sure oh there's i see another picture of me up in the right corner there's a picture of me with pink dreadlocks and a mustache and my wife helen is right underneath me okay yeah do you see the guy with the mustache and the pink dread yeah. <laughs> and helen did you play these songs live let's see we did i think a ruth and smear show on on the radio station here kxlu I think we did one show, or no, maybe that was me sitting in with, uh, I feel like we did put together one show, but it was, uh, I don't think he felt a ton of enthusiasm for doing it. And I don't know, I feel like after this record, I moved and I started working jobs. Like I had been like a, a um, I hadn't been working any jobs at all. And I think we started to drift apart after this record a little bit. So I did, I think we did play a show, but I mean, all of us were just kind of burned out and, um, and exhausted from that period of about 10 years leading up to that. And we were kind of changing. I know after I put out six or seven albums in one year and, (laughs) and I didn't really feel like I made, made any progress. I knew that I it was time to do things differently somehow to try to explore some other other way of doing things, you know. So it was kind of like for me that was '87. That was kind of the end of an era, and that's actually what Gentle Axe was about. Was like when we decided because we've been living in this little apartment in Hollywood, and we had um, we had um, two little babies, and you know my wife, you know, sort of like wrangled her parents into getting us a house down in the suburbs and um and to moving away from hollywood and and changing our lives and um not that we changed all that much but that was like i was like damn she just took a gentle axe to the bars of her cage you know (laughs) just like busted out of one life and moved to another one so right okay so yeah it seemed like an awful lot of work to try to put that together for lives i guess (laughs) Give us a little teaser, if you can, Paul. We're coming up to the DC3 Vita album in two weeks. Oh, cool. Yeah. That came out after the band awesome. split up, right? Um, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I always thought that that was, that was a kind of what happened with that band live sometimes was one of the... Um, was what really it was a really special thing that it was a, it was an early jam band you know it really was a jam band and right. built in a set there was a lot of improvisation you know in the studio that stuff kind of goes out the window there's some of it on the first record but 
the next two records is not a lot of that. And I just thought, you know, let's let's try to capture the live thing, you know. And um, SST, God bless them, they recorded three shows, an eight track, a mobile eight track, and put that together. And I think, in a way, that's uh, that captures the band the best, mm-hmm. the Vita album. What are you up to now, Paul? What are you working on? Oh, well, I have a recording studio called Kitten Robot in Los Angeles, and uh, actually, we just started a label as well. We just put out the label just put out a um, called Crow Jane that um, I did, which is it's it's exactly the same thing I did with Pat. I took an artist that I thought was special and had no idea where it was going to go, and just sat with her and let it develop and turn into something really completely its own. And um, it's interesting. There's real parallels because um, it was such a similar thing. Like, we're just making some recordings. We're just making some, you know, with nothing, no goals or anything like that. Hey, I have a studio. You want to come over and do something? And and um, and it got it got really good. It's getting a really good response. Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of a Lords of the Al- Lords of Altamont um, album. Oh, do you cool. know who they are? Yeah, for sure. Yep. Yeah. The Bomboras. Yeah. I'm in the middle of that. <laughs> I'm in the middle of a band called Tombstones in Their Eyes, which is uh, our next release for the label. Uh, let's see. I'm in the middle of an album named, from a guy named David Reeves. I'm in the middle of a Josie Cotton album. Oh, right on. Um, oh, I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, and a band called The Wristlitters, unfortunately named The Wristlitters. <laughs> that, uh, um, the first release on the label, is that out? Can people hear it? Yeah. Um, it's funny. It's It kind of sucks because... Uh, I think there's another band called Crow Jane, and I think that um, uh, there, there's this Skip James song, Crow Jane. So Google's not super helpful finding her as yet. But if you search Kitten Robot Crow Jane, I'll bet you you'll find it. Or Crow Jane. And it's, she's, it's, a one, it's a girl. She's one very pretty girl. She's made three. She's made two incredible videos as well because she's a makeup artist. So she also is doing these stunning, like, um, sci-fi you know, it's just brilliant videos, which is really helpful. And the third one is about to come out this week, which is a cover of uh, of a James Brown song, Man's World. So if you search Crow Jane, Man's World, or Crow Jane, Terminal Secrets, so I think the first single she did, Terminal Secrets, is just, I mean, not only an amazing song, incredible video. So I'm really, really thrilled. And you know, I may record a lot of stuff, and I really give my heart to all of it. But every once in a while, I'm like, I feel like, oh, this this is like a Paul album, you know? Like, I feel like ownership, you know? Other bands, when I'm producing, I feel like a member of the band. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, I feel like, uh, this is like mine. <laughs> the, the second the second Demone Quartet album is called Substrata Strip, and I felt like I've joined the band, and we did it live, and we did that record. I was, when it was done, I was like, oh, you don't hear that every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I'll tell you, this Ruth and Smear record is... A phenomenal record. You should be proud of it. Uh, I hope this podcast at least plays some small part in turning some people on to it or having people revisit it. So it's been great to talk to you about it. Great to talk to you. Yeah. And I really appreciate what you do and people such as yourself who like, um, you know, like at this point, people like us are like the old blues guys when we were growing up. We're like kind of off living in obscurity, and we did a lot of cool stuff when we were kids. And when people um, think that what we were, it was, it meant a lot to us when we were doing it. And the fact that someone would still be interested after all these years, 
it's like what we always wanted. It's kind of a dream come true that someone could discover it years later. I mean, that's so people um, like you, archivists, and and people who appreciate, um, you know, how music has evolved and the different historical periods. I mean, I just think it's uh, we appreciate you. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, thanks again, Paul, for being on the show. It was great talking to you. Cool, man. Yeah. We'll talk soon. You bet. All right, man. Thanks, Paul, again, for being on the show. It's kind of like you're there in the studio with them as they're figuring out this record and going through the process. So very cool to hear that. Also cool to hear all the other stuff that Paul is up to these days. Yeah. That, so on that subject, a few of the things he mentions, the Crow Jane stuff that's on his Kitten Robot label. I checked out some of the videos that he talks about in the interview. They're really cool, Crow Jane. People should check them out. Uh, but the thing that really stuck out, he just mentioned it really quickly in a passing comment, this Jetain Damone quartet record, Substrata Strip, like he's a member of that band. That's really good. They That album came out in 2018. They're kind of gothy post-punk. Jetain was in Christian Death. Um, he engineered it at Kitten Robot and he plays on it. Uh, and Jetain's husband, Rick Agnew, plays guitar on that record. That's really cool. Huh. But uh, as far as this record goes, I mean, f- really happy to have Paul on. We wouldn't have been able to dig up any of this information if we wouldn't have had, had him on. And uh, There's a real story behind this record. And it's a real shame, again, that this record is hard to listen to like from an accessibility standpoint. You can't find it. It's not, you can't buy it on iTunes, you can't, I mean, in an ideal world, you would be able to buy a deluxe edition remastered version of this with those demos. <laughs> yeah, bonus did, tracks, you know? first thing that came to yeah. my mind. You know, a few of the things I liked um, is when Paul's saying, you know, hats off to Greg Ginn. And he kind of lays yep. it out that, yeah, the early projects made money and a lot of the later ones didn't. I think he puts it like something like everyone was robbed, but it was sort of for a good cause. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, a very telling, a very telling quote, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something, you know, when he's talking about how magical the, the sessions for this were, he says the kind of experience he's kind of chased his whole life making this record. And it sounds like he's had a a few more of, similar type of environment or purpose or coming together of albums, which is very cool. He seems to really attract that type of artistic vision almost. And I mean, he says something along the lines of there's a reason Pat has been in both Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. And that really comes across for me on this record. Like the guy clearly is a visionary. Yeah, very artistic. And the right hand. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the guitar playing on this record is great. Yeah, I thought you would probably mention fret melting by now, but maybe when we go through the tracks. <laughs> oh, you better believe it. Yeah. <laughs> I've singled out all the fret melting. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go through the tracks. History Lesson, Part 2. So this record was released in November of 1987 on LP and cassette only. It's never come out on CD. And it starts with uh, track one, side one, Sahara Hotel, written by Pat and Paul. 
This is the one that has Nina Hagen on it. She's credited as the Angels. I believe Paul says in the interview that Pat's guitar track was pulled from the cassette demo for this one. Pat's singing in falsetto at the start of this, which sounds really good. I like his falsetto. There's an awesome classic rock style solo from Pat. It's a cool way to open the record. It's campy and kind of sets the tone for the rest of the album. It's kind of, you know, has you going, okay, <laughs> you know, what the hell is this record going to be? Yeah, my notes are glam and glitter for this track, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I really liked it. Track two, Golden Boys, written by Pat Darby and Michelle Bell, a.k.a. Gerber. This is apparently one of the last songs that Darby had a hand in writing. This song was recorded by Vagina Dentata and released on a flipside zine comp sung by Michelle Bell, a.k.a. Gerber. And it's a she's a great singer. Uh, it's too bad that band never released a, an album because that track's really good. It's a bit more straight ahead than this version, but and it's it's really great. Gary Jacoby also has a solo album on Triple X under the name Gary Celebrity, and he covers this with Pat on guitar. The Dickies do it on their Idiot Savant record, and probably most famously, No Effects does it on their Never Trust a Hippie EP from 2006. It's just a great rock song. There's probably other versions of it too. Yeah. Yeah. This really kicks off what I wrote down just as a general comment on the record, like some of Pat's vocals, it's the definition of snotty vocals for me, yeah. but they're awesome. Yeah, I love the vocals, but I I bet you if you found a pile of reviews from back in the day, it would single them out oh, yeah. as being a deal breaker for some people. Oh yeah, I, th I think that's part of what Ira Robbins is getting at in his Trouser Press review for sure. Yeah. Odenera, written by Pat and Debbie Patino, who wrote the lyrics. Uh, she was is, of course, from Raw Zebra, the Ringling Sisters. She has a spoken word release on New Alliance Records. Bass is credited to Peyton Balsera, which is Pat. Balsera was apparently Freddie Mercury's last name, I believe is what Pat says, yeah. or Paul says, sorry, in the interview. This one's kind of built around a wah pedal riff. It's a pretty short song. Uh, really far out track. Paul's keyboards give it a cool quality, almost like a revving sound in the background. Yeah. I thought there was some cool guitar riffs in it for sure. And a, a cool breakdown or two as well. Yeah. And then it goes right into blue funk punk written by Pat and Paul. This is a really weird, but cool song. Love Pat's vocals. I don't even know how to describe this track, but I love it. Pat's playing almost sounds Henry Kaiser-esque. A little bit on this one yeah it actually reminded me of this this artist whose records i i have i don't even know how i think my buddy jerry got me into him mike bat you ever heard of mike bat no never um he's like an english singer songwriter producer who put out records i guess more in the in the 70s but probably I don't know. Probably his most famous records would be Six Days in Berlin, Arabesque, Songs of Love and Water, maybe. Tarot Suite is another one. 
uh, that would be worth checking out. I'd be interested to see what you think of Mike Bat B A T T. Check out Tarot Suite and Six Days in Berlin. Those are probably the two that I know the best. That okay. and uh, you know, you said it's hard to describe. I agree, it's hard to describe, but the track reminded me of Mike Bat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then we close out side one with a song called Princess, written by Pat and Michelle is who it's credited to. Paul's piano playing stands out, uh, which I think he says was a sampled piano sound. Pat's solo was amazing on this. This sounds like something from a musical play or something. Yep. We've got Linda Mack on drums, which is the 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 Lynn drum that, that Paul borrowed from Ginn. Someone should make a play out of this record. Yeah, that would be cool. Wow, that would be so <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, this one, of course, has Tracy Lords at the end, who was pretty famous for being underage when she got into porn. There's lots of rock songs about Tracy Lords for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> we'll flip the record over and go to Magic Candle Tragicanary, written by Pat and Paul. This one has Jula Bell on backing vocals, who was indeed in the band Bulimia Banquet. Des was also in that band for a while, and Paul mentions that uh, they were dating. Pat produced their first record, Bulimia Banquet. It's a mid-tempo rocker, one of the more straightforward songs on the album, for sure. Yeah, it's got that crowd noise breakdown, too. Yeah. That adds to the theatrical flavor for this whole record, to me, almost. And it's got the, he fucks like a vampire lyric, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Track two, The Area of the Circle, written by Pat and Harry. Harry is Kristen Farrelly, a friend of Pat's, uh, who wrote the lyrics. Linda Mack, again on drums, and Diggy Roots on harp, which is Paul Rossler. The arrangement and insp instrumentation of these songs is totally original, and this is a great example of that. A good use of car horn sounds, I think, on this track. <laughs> yeah. I think. Track three, the Xmas song, Pat, Jenna, and Sandra. Sandra Christensen is credited as helping write the music. I think Paul says she's a musician they were also doing some demos with on the four track, possibly thinking of bringing her in as a new vocalist for Twisted Roots. I couldn't, couldn't dig up any info on her. Jenna is Jenna Cardwell, uh, Pat's longtime girlfriend at the time of this recording. Paul calls this the dance number of the record, definitely a drum machine. Uh, Paul yeah. doing his DC3 trick of playing bass on the keys on this one. Yeah, the keys sounded very Devo-esque to me as well with the drum machine. And it is the one that really sticks out drum machine-wise because the drums, like they keep the rhythm, but they don't really rock that much on this track. Yeah. Sometimes drum machine drums can rock, not on this one. Yeah. Eyes and Hearts, written by Pat and Jenna. You can hear that queen influence on this one it's like an epic rock opera vibe yeah pat just shredding his ass off all of his guitar <laughs> all of his guitar playing on this record the leads and rhythm is very tasty for me love it he's not a guitar player i really think of as a lead guitar player but he can do it yeah no he's he can but he rarely does because um that's not the space 
he wants to fill in, uh, at least in Nirvana and the Foos, anyways. Yeah. It's kind of like Brian Ritchie when we found out he can actually melt frets. Yeah. Yeah. And then we end the record with A Gentle Axe, written by Pat and Paul. It fades in from one of these, like a seashore sound. This is a perfect way to end the record. It, got, it sounds just like a finale to, yeah, a, to does, a production, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, this would be the credits, right? You betcha. Yeah. Well, the big bow got, at the end. Yeah. You got Gary Jacoby, Jula Bell on backing vocals. Uh, it's such a cool song. The way they build layers on vocally and it climbs up a step, like every second measure or whatever. I don't know, Ryan. For me, it's just a totally original record. You can tell Paul is really proud of the record, and he should be. It really stands up as a unique piece of art for me. Totally nice surprise. And if you heard this back in the day and you kind of dismissed it, give it another shot. And if you've never heard this record before and you don't own it, it's probably up on YouTube. Uh, It's unfortunate that that would be the only place you could probably hear it, but give give it a listen. Yeah, it's a real piece of art that they both totally, totally poured themselves into. And yeah. it stands up. I was, uh, I had new ears on when I listened to it this week, and I was really impressed. Yeah. Hey, maybe Paul will put those demos up on his band camp or something. Yeah. That'd, I'd love to hear them. That'd be cool. Especially considering, you know, they mirror this record. Like, they were trying to recreate those demos in Radio Tokyo, which is where it was recorded by Ethan James and Richard Andrews. Uh, Paul says, in just a couple of days, actually, which is pretty amazing, considering, you know, how in-depth, you know, it's not a band playing live in the studio together. This is a real studio creation. Yeah, you couldn't make these tracks, you know. These are not first-take tracks. These are, you know... You have to get a good solid take and then you build on it. Yeah. It sounds really good sonically. It must have been really interesting to mix this record. There's a lot going on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's what I kept thinking about when I heard it was, you know, all songs are created in somebody's head. But there's a big difference between a a four-piece band bashing out a song live in the studio and this record, which is more of a studio creation. Somebody really had to hear these songs, Pat and Paul, in their in their mind, you know? Oh, yeah, there was definitely a vision. There was a vision that they needed to put down on the tape, for yeah. sure. The artwork is equally amazing. Yeah, the, the front cover is a picture of Pat with those... Uh, notes on his face with all different colors and that parrot you mentioned uh, in the interview and I would say he is 100% wearing a <laughs> vampire cape 100% yeah. his name's his and, name's Diablo by the way it says on the back it yeah. does yeah and, and also there is perhaps a vampire parrot castle in the background <laughs> on this picture oh yeah that's totally Diablo's castle man yeah, yeah exactly Diablo's Castle, done. Flip over the cover, though, and you can spend a lot of time looking at this collage of pictures on the back. The thing that, like, there's there's a a lot to take in, and I'm glad that you and Paul went through it. Like, 
you know, referencing some of the people that are in here for sure. But there's like, you know, a bit of randomness, like a random cutout of cookies, you know, I yep. There's a random, I think, like some sort of cat or ferret in the bottom right, like weird stuff. Um, several parrots, you know, all all over. I um, think one of the the little cartoon mice is from that movie, The Rescuers. Yes, yeah, yeah. perhaps. Um, what I also never really realized, like I'm pretty sure Pat Smear is like a, a pretty solid Hagstrom player. And I think he even has his own signature copy. But I, I think he's playing a hag in these shots. And I didn't know he was playing a hagstrom like that far back. I thought that was kind of a, like maybe almost a foo, like early foo fighters when he, but it seems like he's been a fan of the hag forever. Hmm. That's didn't cool. Know that. yeah. yeah. He's got an awesome checkerboard, like almost like a taxi checkerboard guitar strap at one point in the picks, too. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, you know, all kinds of, I'd like to know. You know, which of those bands is Vagina Dentata? There's definitely some germs pictures on there. Did you mention in the interview, like, is that Courtney Love in one shot? I don't know. Which one? Uh, far left in the middle. Where in relation to the chocolate chip cookies? Uh, two inches above the chocolate chip cookies. Courtney Love? Do you not see the blonde woman there? Next, right behind the dreadlocks? Yeah, maybe that is her. I don't know. Maybe, maybe tell. not. Yeah, I don't think they met that early, so I don't think so. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Maybe that, yeah. He's yeah, got a sweet ghetto blaster in the picture up with removable speakers. That would make you like... I had one of those, man. Yeah, you would have a rockin' pad with one of those, man. Yep. A picture of Kiss right beside that, too. I don't know if you can make that out. Hmm. Yeah, I missed that. Uh, there's some cool artwork too on the uh, LP labels of some parrots and some really, really nice handwritten song titles. Yeah, great lettering on there, and it looks it looks very cool. The parrot drawing, mm -hmm. um, holding each other's tail. That's that's prime like that's prime territory for uh, around the arm tattoo. I would say for sure. <laughs> um, can I hit you with some dead wax? Oh, yeah. All right. It's not easy to figure out which is side A and B here. Hang on. Okay, so side A, the dead wax says A, B, C, D, E, F, U, C, K. Hmm. Get it? Yep. Okay. I was just singing that. Uh, speaking of Brian Ritchie, I was just singing that. Remember his song? Oh, remind me. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> oh, man. Side B. X, X, O, O. Couple of hugs and kisses if you picked out the side B yep. uh, grooves. Cool record. I'm glad it exists. Yeah. Ballot result. Ballot result. Before we actually pick the ballot result, Brent, I have to mention that my copy of this um, again, a cutout copy, but thankfully, it actually comes with the SST hype, like promo catalog in it. And so, oh, and this cool. was November of '87, right? Yeah. Okay, so the front page of this catalog—it's all me puppets. That's it. It just says Wavos is new on LP and cassette and and CD. We just had Wavos on the show. Um, 
we just had Weibos on the show not too long ago. They're definitely hyping a bunch of, you know, classic releases and and new releases. And then there's some great Spaceman write-ups. But it also has this thing where they, they would put like a single sheet in there mm. to to give like a monthly update. This one says new releases and it's dated November 4, 1987. There are about 35 releases on this sheet. It's just ridiculous. And it goes from SST-102 to SST-164. And it's just a look back on what we've done this year, really, and a kind of a snapshot and what we'll do in the, the first half of next year. Just insane. And then it says, you flip it over, Additions to current catalog continued, and there are more on side two. <laughs> and then, and then it's pumping. You know, now available on compact disc, Live eighty four by Flag, Meat Puppets Out My Way, Sonic Youth self titled, Frith and Kaiser with enemies like these, Swa Evolution, which we'll get to um, mm-hmm. next month, and they're also pumping out some new Leaving Trains, Screaming Trees, Divine Horsemen shirts and a blast abraxas sticker brand new november 1987 wow yeah man they were just mershing it up (laughs) wow not to be confused with moshing it up no man they were going full mersh anyways what do you what do you want to do for a ballot result on this one there's a few contenders my picks were sahara hotel golden boys blue funk punk and a gentle axe yeah i kind of like i had golden boys too and i kind of feel like that's got to be the one like isn't that the hit yeah off this record yeah Yeah, it is this for me is really an album oh yeah you know worth listening to front to back for sure i agree i I, so i would throw i would throw my hat in for uh golden boys but you pick because i really think that this one struck a chord with you more than me, even. Yeah, we can do Golden Boys. Right on. Woo. Thanks, Paul, for coming on the show. Really happy to have this album explained by one of the people that made it. Uh, Pat did politely decline to come on the show, so it was really good to, to have Paul on. Yeah, no doubt. We'd love to have Pat on for the second... Pat and Paul for when we do Pat's next record would be killer. Um, but... Look forward to Paul joining our three-timers club, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Well, you know, we still got a, a Paul Rossler solo record coming up. Ding, ding, ding. Of course. Yep, yep. Oh, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, we start our countdown for the remaining episodes this year for the Mojack Pod. It's yeah. uh, the first of our last three episodes. We're going to go with SST. 155 the sonic youth master dick ep yeah we've got a special guest too ryan wharton tears is going to be on the show nice hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content 
If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.